Paul had, as we're aware of, uh, taken four major trips documented in Scripture. He'll certainly take more than that. They're just not recorded like after the book of Acts, uh, chronologically after the book of Acts. But of those four, the second time, Paul, I remind you, a very battered, beaten, and fearful, and rather ill Paul, if you will, makes his way into Corinth for the first time. He's afraid. He's afraid because he's been beat up and hurt really badly in Macedonia. Macedonia is Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and all of those places. They were great experiences in regards to fruit, but they were rough in regards to opposition. Paul will go from there to Athens, I remind you, and from Athens he will go to Corinth. And in Corinth, Jesus says, stop being afraid now, Paul. And that tells me a lot about the condition Paul entered into Corinth. He had concluded, and we read that in 1 Corinthians, he concluded not to (coughs) compromise his message like he did in Athens. He decided he was going to do simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing fancy, nothing superior in speech or in intellect, nothing of super persuasive words. In other words, he didn't, he realized the responsibility wasn't his. It was God's and he needed to be obedient. So, a really jilted Paul shows up in Corinth he has been uh, he's been really hurt now he was stoned and left for dead on his first trip and went out for the second but it wasn't like every place he went like this was and it was inside and outside and governmental and all kinds of things it was rough but when he gets there Jesus says and he makes a house call and he says no reason to be afraid I I'm going to be with you, and I have people stationed in great places. You don't have to worry. And Paul spends a year and a half there. The second longest time he'll spend in any one location for any period of time, first, of course, being Ephesus. And even with that, there's a riot. And ultimately, Paul will leave there. But for the places like Thessalonica or Berea, where he goes... And he preaches, and then he flees. The churches seem rather solid, and it's amazing how much information Paul can get out to people in a, in a week or two. You would expect Corinth to be the most mighty, doctrinally strong, mature church to, at this point that Paul has gotten to. But there's a problem. And please hear me in this. And again, like always, please don't just believe me, but please consider what I say and compare it to Scripture. There were other very high-profile people who had shown up in Corinth after Paul's exit, primarily a man named Apollos, who was excellent in speech. To be honest, I really believe that everything they make Paul out to be was what Apollos was. You know, like how brilliant he is, like he would speak and it was eloquent and brilliant and, and everything about what he said would sort of shame C.S. Lewis. Well, that was Apollos. That wasn't Paul. 
Paul makes really clear. He tells him, he's like, look at you guys were the ones who said, this guy's not much to look at, and his speech is contemptible. Speech is contemptible. In other words, his voice irritates you, and what he says, the way he says it, just, it just gets on your nerves. He says that in this one. But imagine after a year and a half. Now we know that here. After a year and a half and you've dumped and you've poured your life into it. Well, then the news gets to him. And as the news gets to him, three people seem to be bringing the letters, Stephanus, Portinatus, and Achaicus. And they bring this letter and it says the, the church is in a mess. These are three primary issues that we see. And then we've got a bunch of questions for you, Pastor Paul. And 1 Corinthians, again, is that response. He's responding to a church that I think he's really, I'll be honest, I think he's blown away by the fact that they are not growing, even though he spent so much time there. And, and I wonder how much of Paul, he had, like he kind of, how much of Paul he laid on the table and went, what am I doing wrong? And I remind you, those three primary issues is that, first of all, they were divided by name-dropping. They were, some were saying, I'm of Apollos. Some were saying, oh, I'm of Paul. He's the church planter. He's the founding father of this church, if you will. Some were like, well, I'm actually of Peter. Some were like, I'm of Christ. Y'all nuts. And he goes, but they all drew battle lines in the church, and they were all fighting each other over there. And he says, in the way that Paul addresses in the simplest sense is, we're all nobodies. I don't care how fancy Apollos is, or how mighty Peter may seem. I remind you, about the same time, people are throwing themselves in his shadow, Peter's shadow. They're trying to get his apron, because evil spirits, I don't get this, you lay an apron on somebody, and evil spirits flee. I don't know what you've been baking, but man, that's pretty crazy. Some serious holy bread. And so I can see people saying they're of Apollos if they're not spiritually led. And he looks at me and he goes, we're nobodies. That's what we are. So why in the world would you name drop us when you can name drop the one name above all names? Then, he goes, you know what I heard? According to what these guys are telling me, I mean, Chloe's household was the one kind of telling me about these divisions, but there's this guy sleeping with his dad's wife. Now, regardless of how much we want to try to clean it up, it's mom or stepmom, it's clearly wrong. And this is what he says. He says, even the Gentiles don't do this. He goes, the unsaved world in a place that's known for sin, especially sexual sin, even they have boundaries and they won't go past them. And the church here is proud of it. And it wasn't just that this person was doing this, but the church was proud of how tolerant they were about this sexual sin. And he says, you know how to handle that? You kick that guy out of the church. You hand him over to Satan. He says, because that guy needs to realize, he, I mean, please hear me, it is one of the most unfriend things you can do is give someone a false sense of security. When they're killing themselves and you don't tell them, we become accomplices. Especially when we're, well, obviously when we're aware of it. Now, who wants to get that letter? Let's face it. If somebody did something horrible in the church, horrible in the church, 
And everybody was in agreement that that person was a threat. We're not even talking about a guy just sleeping with somebody and living it and proud of it. But they were a threat. And Bruno and Hugo and Daniel and myself, we were on our knees, we were on our faces, and we were praying, I'm like, this person needs to not be welcome here anymore. How weird would that be for the rest of us? Who would be the first to say, you know, that's very unforgiving. That's really unmerciful. I can't believe they did it. Who do they think they are? It is amazing how, no matter any time, people don't mind somebody being a leader until they have to be the one, until they have to be a leader, which, by the way, includes discipline. So Paul lays this thing out, and I remind you, it isn't like Paul's like, I'm going to go there and kick him out. He is leaving this in the hands of his elders that he ordained himself and said, you guys need to do this. But he said, listen, it wasn't to permanently kick him out and never, he's like, the idea of it is, as long as this guy is unrepented, as long as he is willing, as long as he is unwilling to admit this is wrong, this guy needs to leave. And you know how that plays out here. 2 Corinthians 6, 9 makes it really clear that people who practice certain things, certain lifestyles of sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, but such were some of you. The issue isn't what you were. The issue is, are you willing to say it's wrong like Jesus said it was and willing to let God change you? And then the third of those issues, I remind you, was that they were suing each other. And Paul, of all, interesting, of the first two, he doesn't say this, but of this one he says, it is utter failure. In other words, the climax of all of these was this one. Not the guy sleeping with his mom and people being proud of him. This was the one. Because you, the reason was, because they were dragging the world in to solve the problems. In other words, they were interfering with the world coming to Jesus because of what they were doing. Because they were so busy getting theirs. And he goes, you know what? Here's a couple options. Be wronged. It would rather you'd be better off being wrong than interfere with anybody coming to Jesus. Or find somebody that you both respect you'll submit to and let that wise man pass judgment. Let him do that. And we've been in those kind of cases, by the way, where we have sat and we've had to mediate for situations. The only problem in all of those is someone isn't going to be happy with your answer. Some, most of the time, both aren't. But someone's going to be unhappy with your answer and you have no force, per se, to demand that they do it. You just, you know, you said you'd submit to the answer. Here it is. Well, I didn't think it was going to be against me. Well, of course you didn't think it was going to be against you. And then they have a bunch of questions. Marrying me, giving idols, men and women at the table. Spiritual gifts, love, that's chapter 13. How spiritual gifts are practiced in a church service, or, sport, or chapter 14. 15, what it really means, that there clearly has to be a resurrection or you're out of your nut. And then chapter 16, don't forget I'm going to make a collection with you guys because we're going to go and help the church in Judea. I love you guys. Bye. So, Paul is still on his way, but somewhere in all of it, he catches information and the church has gotten back to him. And the church gets back to him with this information. First of all, Paul, who in the world do you think you are? Now the church is divided in a different way. Now it wasn't just Peter and Paul and Apollos. Now it's the love Paul or hate Paul groups. It's down to two now. Because he isn't addressing the issue of division much in this particular book. But what he has is there's a group of people who actually are like 
Can we see your letter of ordination? Your letter of commendation? In other words, could I see your cred, please? And Paul is flabbergasted. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? You're my letter of commendation. In other words, people are like, how do you even think you're an apostle? Or how do you even think you're a pastor? How could you even think? And he's like, how could you think I'm not? You're proof of this. The reason you guys are at a church having this meeting about me is because this church was founded because I went there and preached in the first place. And he is really, really hurt. Now, hear me. You can be frustrated and angered by someone you don't care about. But you can only be grieved by someone you love. And that's, by the way, the hard part of being a Christian is you learn to love people that are going to really grieve you. I find it interesting, by the way, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think that's a really profound statement under those contexts. And he's like, and he'll say things like, well, here, let me give you an idea. Listen to these verses. Chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You're our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You get the idea. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Do we begin chapter 5.12? Do we begin to commend ourselves again to you? We do not, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer to those who boast in appearance but not in heart. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are sound mind, it's for you. Chapter 6, verse 11, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. You are restricted by your own affections. Now when we turn for the same, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion is light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial, which is worthlessness? Or what has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You're the temple of the living God. As God had said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Chapter 7, verse 2. Open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. Wait a minute. Wronged, corrupted, cheated? These are the accusations of Paul? The guy who gave his life over to serve this church? Planted this church? And this is the way they're treating him? He says, I say this not to condemn you. For I've said before that you're in our hearts. To die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort and I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am in presence and lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence in which I tend to be bold against some. 
who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And you get the idea of Paul's planning on coming, and he really doesn't want to have to come and be the sheriff. He doesn't want to come with his guns loaded. He wants to come with his arms open. And they're very different things. It's like, you guys, I need your help in this. Even if we should boast, this is 10.8. Listen, even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I'm not going to be ashamed, lest I should seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider us that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, so we also will be indeed when we're present. You get the idea, he's threatening. Now clearly, even before I go on the last few, you get the idea that someone in that church is comparing what Paul looks like, his outer shell, and saying that he doesn't add up. Which tells me that somebody else must be adding up in comparison. I, I, pardon me for saying, I can't help but think that the Apolloites are really having a hard time with Paul. Now, it's not just that Paul isn't cute. And it's not just that Paul isn't a gifted speaker, per se. And he may just have been ill, because it's very likely he had malaria by this point. But it's also that he's suffering a lot. What seems to be absent in Apollos' testimony is that Paul's still getting beat up, and he's still being abused. And you could see someone that's sort of the theologian, where they're much more isolated from real combat, and they'll tell you that their greatest combat or the greatest battle is with the words. I'm like, you, you know, if you actually obeyed the ones... Your greater battle will be the spiritual battle I got ordained. But can you see them looking and going, well, wait a minute, you know, if God really had his blessing on you, you would be wealthy, and you would be healthy, and you would be absent of trial. Does that sound familiar? There's a lot of churches, they call them prosperity churches, or word faith churches, that will actually tell you if you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you're poor, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, imagine Paul showing up at one of those churches. They would say, well, clearly, why would I want you to speak? You're not impressive. You're beat up. You're, you're sick. I don't see any of God's prosperity on you. Isn't that scary? And you know what's scary? We can all not in agreement here. But if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in that area and ease up on something God, that God made really clear in Scripture. Hey, God does want to prosper you. But if you think the best prosperity God has for you is money, you're, you're missing the whole point. The reason people want money is it's a means to the things we have without it. The love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that they want. And we have them, whether we have stuff or not. So chapter 11, verse 1 Oh, I should say this, verse, chapter 10, verse 17. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He's quoting, by the way, from Jeremiah. Um, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Oh, that you would bear with me, 11 and 1, a little folly. And indeed you will bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betroth you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ in a very perverted society. 
He's trying to present them as a chaste virgin. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Notice, notice what they would be perverted from. Notice what they would be uh, corrupted from. It's not just Christ. What is it? The simplicity. Notice that. The more that I study God's word, the simpler it gets. Not more complicated. He's like, I'm really concerned. Which tells me, and by the way, can I say it this way? Brilliant, unspiritual men. And I'm not telling you Apollos was unspiritual, but brilliant, unspiritual men complicate everything. And spirit-led men often make things quite simple because that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to understand the most brilliant truths in the most simplest of ways. Think about how many times... Think, can you think of one time in Scripture Jesus spoke above people? Where <coughs> his message... I mean, this is God. You can't come up with somebody more brilliant than God. You can't start with darkness and invent a rainbow and the crab nebulae and those way cool fish underneath the ground or underneath the sea, deep in the sea. I mean, you can't... You couldn't have come up with that. I couldn't have come up with that. And yet when God chose to, spoke, to speak like through Jesus... As Hebrews 1 makes clear, is his final statement, if you will. He never spoke above anyone. He says, look at it. I'm fearful. I'm really fearful that the deception that the enemy did to Eve is happening to you in the area of simplicity. For if he who preaches, he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit from which you've not received, or a different gospel than you've not accepted, oh, you will well put up with it. Can I just say, that is London as far as I can see. It's like, as long as it's another Jesus, they're good with it. As long as it's a different gospel, oh, it's fine. As long as it's a different spirit, bring it on. But the moment it's the Jesus of the Bible, and the moment it's the gospel that says he died for you and you need to die now and let, let Christ raise you, well, I mean, and again, you know, spiritually, let, let Christ save you there. The moment that you need to cry out for a savior... People just aren't into that, but they'll happily take anything else. I consider that I am not inferior, inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though, notice he says, I am untrained in speech, which tells me it wasn't just illness. Yet I am not in knowledge. We have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Truly the signs of an apostle, 12.12, were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds, for what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself wasn't burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Can you see in these verses the pain Paul is feeling? It's like, would you please open your hearts to us? And I imagine all the names he could call. The people for a year and a half that he spent investing in people. Could you imagine the people you want to call out and go, you know this, and you know this, and you know this. And when people are like, oh, there are people, and they're just saying, you know, you look like an idiot, and you look stupid, and you know, you're embarrassing them. You're embarrassing them by the way you're talking. And imagine, I wonder if Paul started going through the, if you will, sort of through the files in his head to wonder, well, what about that guy? What about that? Maybe that guy? I'm certainly not this guy. And the more that, I mean, you know what the weird part is? When you start to find out who turns code on you, it is one of the most devastating things you can imagine. 
because sometimes you're like, okay, well, maybe that person, that kind of would make sense, but I would never have guessed in a million years that one. And you see that one. Was that the door? Mm-hmm. You just peek over the corner? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You know what? Why don't we, should we probably start closing these doors? Is it getting cold in here for you guys? This letter has a much harder flow. Much like when you're emotionally driven, you're kind of like a jackrabbit. And he'll keep bouncing back and forth through these. As you notice, it wasn't like I said, chapter 5, here's the chapter. I'm like, here's a little from 5, here's a little from 6, here's a little from 7, here's 10 and 11. And it's like what you find is, because he keeps going back to this, and you know this, when somebody hurts you and you try to go on with your day, it just keeps popping up, you know? And and then you have to, like, you know, if you feel it again for the moment, and then you try to put it down and deal with, you know, kind of get back to what you're trying to do, and it keeps popping up. And I wonder how much of this was planned as far as in this letter. So on one side of it, it's, I, I would say it's the most emotional letter, because Paul is definitely speaking out of hurt. But it's not the entirety of the letter. On the other side of it, remember I said there was it had drawn the battle lines had not been drawn to who's for Paul and who's against him. Well, there were those that were for Paul, and they did the hard thing. They booted that guy out, and I would imagine that's probably where the lines got drawn. And again, I'm only I'm only projecting here. Forgive me, but you know the moment that they actually did tell the guy, if you're going to live that kind of life, it's not this is not the place to live it. And I imagine at that point, there was a whole group of people that were like, who do you think you are for doing that? And they're like, well, Paul said it. Yeah, but Paul, look at that guy. He's getting beat up all over the place. This is probably why he's getting beat up, because he's doing things like this. You know, imagine how that plays out. But it's like, look, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to make choices you know are going to offend people, and you know are going to make people angry. But they're right still. And that's, the, that, and that's a leader as a parent. That's a leader as a teacher. That's a leader as I, you know, that's just, that's the way God calls us to, you have to make those decisions you know are going to make people angry, but that doesn't make them unright because it happens. So what happened to the other group? 
Now, what they say is, if you're going to do this, you know, this guy is never going to come back. He's never going to go to Jesus. Instead, he's going to start a website called IHateYou.com and, you know, and all that. Well, interestingly enough, the guy actually repented. (coughs) Basically, other than this emotional issue that Paul keeps bouncing back to, really, there's only two other key things in the whole book. One of them is that he is going to still make that collection anyways, because he's still going to do it. And, of course, there's an issue of giving. But really, primarily, the rest of it is the fundamental theme of, well, now the guys come back. What do we do? And that becomes so fundamental for us in our ministry. And this is how it plays out. So I've put all the verses in regards to giving the gift. I mean, if I could put all of that. But notice this. Paul says that what we are is ministers of reconciliation. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority was sufficient for such a man. So on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest he be swallowed up by too much sorrow, and therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Three things he lays out here, and I think they are the best things for Let's face it, you've done something stupid, but now you're repentant. You don't want to go back to church. And the hard part now is, it isn't, like, it isn't like in Corinth, there were a whole bunch of churches and you just left one and went to another. It's like you would go back to the church you came from. Because it was your community. It was so much more than just the place you visited like a favorite restaurant. And he goes, in that case, you would imagine, in that culture, you just had to eat, crow, and go. But in ours, they're never going to come back. I mean, if they repented, they'd just find another church because... Who wants to actually have to humble themselves in front of people that they know they've hurt? However, it's still the healthiest route to go, route to go. And he says, these are the three things you really need to do. First of all, you need to forgive them. You need to go, I mean, the person has, uh, has repented. You need to forgive them. Now, again, we are talking about somebody who has admitted the wrong. And they're seeking out, look at there, sometimes when you can't restore them to certain circumstances, a child molester is never restored back to a children's ministry position. That's obvious. That's for the sake of it. Because you want to remove from them any temptation. A person who has fallen in a lesbian encounter should never, ever work with women's ministry again because of the temptation that would be there for them. Those are the kind of things that, like, obviously where the area of sin is, boundaries need to be set for someone like that. That's only reasonable. But for a relationship, since we have the ministry of reconciliation, you have to forgive them for your own sake. But then again, they're trying to get back into fellowship. And it says, second, is that you comfort them. Literally, you come alongside them. Lest they be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Now, this is where you reach out. You reach out to an individual like that. Now, there's a, and we're going to talk about what that looks like here in a moment and how radical God's way of doing things is and how beautiful it is. The third thing, though, is that you have to reaffirm your love for him. So forgive, comfort, reaffirm. I still love you. I'm still committed to you. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now you know what reconciliation is, right? Two parties that were at enmity with each other now have become have been reunited. And by the way, the whole ministry of Jesus Christ, that's his whole ministry. 
is reconciling mankind to the God, to the God they've offended. Because that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors of Christ, for Christ. As, through, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He was like, you know, your whole drawing lines and hating me, Paul going back to that point. It's like, man, you, your problem's not with me, it's with God in this. So what does real reconciliation look like? Real restoration? Well, let me see this. It starts with a genuine sorrow. Now we're going to talk about the individual. And the more that you know this, the more it helps us. Now look at Our heart is to restore and to reconcile. That is our heart. So we start with this. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, there is a point where it says he would have loved to feed himself on the, the slop that the pigs were getting. Couldn't even do that. He was in a really rough state. And there comes a time where you hate the consequences of that sin. But that doesn't necessarily mean you hate the sin. And when you hate the consequences, once those consequences lessen, you run back into your sin. When you hate the sin, you'll do whatever is necessary not to go near it again. And you listen when someone talks about this, their events. You know, a man has is, is, is done something stupid and he started to flirt with someone and that went into the situation where it became sort of a questionable relationship and then ultimately, of course, he inched himself to where he found himself. Or a gal did it online. We've had to deal with both sides. And, and it's like, in it, it's like, well, tell me, tell me about where the Lord is working in this situation right now. And you're like, well, let me just say, you know, my family hates me. My friends hate me. You know, it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. First of all, it's a very me-centered point of it all. But second of all, it's all the circumstances. It isn't, there's no hatred anymore to the actual sin. It's just, I just hate that my life has not been made miserable. I wish I had never made that choice. Hey, that all is about circumstance. And this is what it says. Chapter 2, verse 1, about sorrow. I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. If I made you sorrow, sorrowful, well then who is it he that makes, sorry, who is he who makes, <laughs> this is not easy to say, who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? You try saying that. <laughs> and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come, or when I came, I should have sorrow over those I, whom I have joy, having confidence in you, with all that my joy is the joy of you all. Here's the point, chapter 7, verse 8. Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. Oh, I did regret it. I perceive that the same epistle that made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. My end goal was not to make you sorry. Hear me on that. My end goal was not to make you sorry. You hear people and they get upset with each other. Couples, this happens a lot with couples. And all they really want to do is make the other person sorry. And we do that. We'll go, I'm sorry. Like, oh, what do you want? 
And you know, often when you say I'm sorry, what you're just saying, nor I mean, if we're going to be honest, is lay off. I'm done. I don't want to hear any more of it. That's the opposite of what you want. When God starts nailing us, His Holy Spirit starts nailing us. It's never to condemn; it's to convict. It's not so we're sorry; it's that we would repent. Let's face it: isn't all correction ultimately supposed to be the correct behavior? Not just to make it miserable. Now look at it. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And he tells us that there are two kinds of sorrow. So let's play this out for a second. Let's say that there's Hugo and there's Blugo. Okay, you'll get to be the godly sorrow. Playing that out. Okay. On one side, it says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation or wholeness. It's the word. Not to be regretted. In other words, that sorrow is not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces what? Did you notice both? By the way, all that noise is coming from my stomach. I just want you to know that. It's making really clear. Enchiladas are having some fun in my stomach. Just don't want you to fear. I close the doors now. Uh, both sorrows produce something. Did you notice that? One sorrow produces repentance, ultimately salvation. The other sorrow produces death. So, let's say Hugo and Blugo, the twins, are 14. And as they're 14, the two of them are out skating. And as they're out skating, they decide they're going to do this kind of truck ride down these, down these rails. They're going, to do a rail, they're going to ride the rails down these two uh, stairwells. And as they ride down the railings of these two things, they run over two poor old women on the other side of it and kill them. Horrible, horrible, tragic situation. Now, they're both in a situation where if they value human life, there's a part of them that says, oh my goodness, I just killed someone. That, let's just say that's what goes through Hugo's head. Blugo, on the other hand, goes, oh, I am in such trouble. Difference. Same circumstance, two different reactions. Might I say the biggest difference from the beginning? Well, I'm, I'm prodding you here with this. Check where the focus is. Ultimately, what happens? Hugo then, grieved by the situation, hurt by the situation, starts to figure out. He calls the police because he wants to see, and an ambulance because he wants to see if this woman can be helped. Bluego, on the other hand, would never call the police because if the police are called, he knows they're going to ask, who hit this gal? And he doesn't want to have to tell him he hit her. So what does he do? He flees. Both of these women, I'll let you guys do it this way. I'm going to back up a little bit. Both of them were really injured, but maybe not, dying, not dead yet. So both of them in the case, Hugo ultimately realizes that he's really seriously hurt this woman, and he's seeking to help her. He's trying to keep her conscious, and then the ambulance shows up. She totally gets the situation she needs. She gets the care, and she's made better. And ultimately... Hugo decides he's going to really do what he can to try to make it better, not only for her, but for her family as well. 
Blugo, on the other hand, has fled from this situation, and because he's fled from the situation, his parliament dies. Now, in a situation like that, where is Blugo's focus? Exactly, it's all about himself. Don't miss that. Where's Hugo's? The woman. The, the, who's been hurt? Now, when you focus on yourself, let me tell you what that could look like. Indignation, injustice, all those things play out great. And I'm sure Marcy's had to deal with that on more than one occasion by somebody that's, in the, you know, where it's like, hey, you know, even though they've done the wrong, they're like, yeah, but it's just not fair. And it's like, well, wait a minute, boy, but it's amazing how much you're focusing on yourself at this moment. And I can't believe that person. Do you know what? Look at how that person made my life miserable. The person who got you caught? Wait a minute. Where's the wrong? Where's the focus here? And he says, there's one case here, by the way, well, here's the danger of it. What if, on the other side of that, let's actually give Blugo a conscience, but we keep him in his focus. Blugo, at this point now, hits the gal. He flees because he doesn't want to get caught. Self-protection, because he's focusing on himself. And then the woman dies. And he realizes that, and all he can think about is how he's responsible. And the more he thinks about it, the more it cripples him to where he ultimately winds up taking his own life. In both of those situations, he was clearly sorrowful, but it wasn't godly sorrow. And because of that, it led to death. And you watch that. On the other side of it, there is a godly sorrow. And what it leads you to do, by the way, metanoeho, the word for repentance, literally means to change your mind. It forces you to change your mind. And from that, you get right with God. Because remember, this is the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when someone's sorry, hey, when you do something and you did something wrong, you're probably going to be sorry. But you may be sorry about the circumstances. You may be sorry about how many people are angry at you now and how many people have unfriended you on Facebook. But in all of that, the point is, is that as a pastor, as a Christian, let me say it's not even as a pastor, but as a Christian, part of what we're desiring to do is to help steer them into a godly sorrow if we can. Because it's the same pain. It's just where it's going. Does that make sense? It means you still feel the same pain. Now listen. Verse 11. Please look at this with me. And you guys see how that's in your handouts, right? I love, I love, I love that we get to go through this because this is never, it's like so seldom talked about within churches. Because, let's face it, the moment someone seems miserable, we feel like that's good enough. Hey, but I, you've got to know, and I love bringing my statements, like, sorry does not, sorry is no guarantee that there's not going to be a repeat offense. Because sorrow is passing. Sorrow has got to lead to a commitment, a commitment that actually <coughs> sets proper hedges. Listen to this. Observe this very thing. In other words, I want you guys to take a really good look at this. That you sorrow, sorrowed in a godly manner. What does it look like? How can I see if someone sorrows in a godly manner? Back to our situation with Hugo. Hugo 
calls me on the phone. That again, this is the story. This is not real life. And he calls me and he goes, you know, I started by trying to do a really cool rail flip. Uh, in the end of it all, I just basically tried to do an ollie down the thing. And ultimately, I ran into this poor old French gal. And I think she was French. And she's unconscious, so I'm not really sure anymore. Uh, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, you know, first of all, let's make, uh, what have you done in regards to the gal? Well, I called, the ambulance is there. You know, he's, he's taking care of, she's now in the hospital. I really want to help take care of this. You know, chances are I'd be like, I'll be right there. And it's like, but when we're starting to ultimately look at that, there's certain things that you start to see that are symptoms of a godly sorrow. Listen to this. Observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, first of all. The first thing is that there is a commitment. I'm going to make this right. That's a pretty radical thing. There is a difference between let's get past it. We don't need to talk about this again. Stop talking about this. And I'm going to do what's necessary to make this right. Second, what clearing of yourself. Now, how does that look? That is not how dare you charge me. It's what do I need to do to make it right now? Clearing yourself says, I've wronged you. What can I do to make it better? I've wronged you. Let's face it, when you start, when you really do something stupid, you hurt a lot of people. You drive a lot of people into it. And to be honest, this is one of the things we try to tell someone when they, especially when they try to do something and it's surreptitious, it's under wraps. I'm like, you need to go to every one of those individuals personally, privately, and ask for their forgiveness. I, I made you hold on to a lie. Would you forgive me? I made you keep this a secret and it was not, and you gave me, you said I should do this, but I didn't. And I called you my accountability. Will you forgive me for that? These are huge issues. Versus who do you think you are to tell me this now? So there is this uh, diligence. There's this clearing of yourself. And then I love this. What indignation. Do you know what that means? The thought of that sin turns your stomach now. You don't get indignant about others. You get indignant about your sin. The one thing that you should hate more than anything else at that moment is that sin. And if you steer that anger towards other people or the consequences or how you feel you're treated unfairly because of it, well, then you're not really properly sorrowing, if you will. And then what fear? You get to this point. And, you know, they talk about stages of grieving. Challenge you to walk through it like that. But it's like there's this place where you start to realize that you are too weak. And then, you know what happens when you're too weak? You call for help. That's what you do. And then, what vehement desire? A commitment to, to, to act it out. What zeal? There's passion to put in it. And then, what vindication? Now, I love that this is Jesus. And all these things, Paul says, this is what I was looking for with you guys. When I said, you really need to deal with this guy hardcore, you know what I saw? Is it really hurt you? You're, you were grieved. Remember when Paul said, yeah, you guys are all proud that this guy's doing this. He goes, you guys should be crying over this. And there were those that took it to heart. And they're like, wow, we need to make this right. This is really bad. What do we need to do? How do we need to do it? Let's do this. I do love this because when I start looking, and it's like, 
I, to be honest, I want to be like this over my sin. I don't want to look at it and go, oh, everybody does that kind of thing, or they all have that attitude, or, you know, and Christianity, as far as the world is concerned, it still doesn't compare to Jesus, and that's the point. So when it comes to the ministry of reconciliation, the first thing is sorrow, a godly sorrow. Does that make sense? Then, remember it says sorrow led to repentance, so that's the next thing. And what we find is, that's what we see here. Chapter 4, verse 1 says we have this ministry, we've received mercy, we don't lose heart, we've renounced the hidden things of shame. Do you know what that means? We've openly said, hey, you guys, this is what I was doing. I know it's going to shock you that that's what I was doing, but this is what I'm doing, and I'm openly renouncing you, whatever needs to happen for me, never to do that again. Now, there is a difference, by the way, between somebody else renouncing it for you and you renouncing it. Because that's often what happens is someone says, you know what you need to do? You need to go. If someone's done this in the church, you need to go and tell everyone. You need to stand from the pulpit, and you need to say, this person did this thing. Now, I understand there are times where you have to do that to set boundaries, but we try not to do that. What we rather do, to be honest, is to have the person. And we always invite the person, look at what you need to do is you need to go and you need to tell everyone. And it's like, you know, and I would like it written out because I want to see what you're saying before you stand up there and say it, you know. And it's because otherwise, you know, you're just giving a platform for, for you're arming everyone to throw their rocks. Anyways, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Therefore, having chapter 7, 1, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, Here's the part of the person that needs to be restored. Their part, they sorrow, but they sorrow properly. And you know what, to be honest, what you really see is humility. What you see is you stop making it about you, and you start making it about everybody else. You make it right with God, and then you make it right with everyone else. And, the moment, and by the way, the moment that a person caught in a sin starts condemning other people or accusing other people, you know they're not taking it seriously like they should. Hey, that doesn't mean they weren't accomplice. But you know, it's like three guys are caught selling drugs, and one guy goes, "Yeah, but he sold more and he sold more." Well, he's not taking, he's not manning up to his own sin, is he? And you know, at a moment like that, you just don't have confidence that this guy's not going to do it again. So what you're saying is, if you were next to two other guys doing it, you were going to do it again, right? And that's, but it's like, you know, and it's like, well, and it doesn't have to be the same sin, it could just be another one. Well, yeah, so that was my thing, but you don't, you know what they did, and you know what they did, and you know, hey, well, wait a minute. This isn't the moment to deal. They need to deal with that. You need to deal with your thing. And it is amazing how the enemy loves to divert us there. You know, when you're sharing Jesus, and you're saying, you, Jesus died for your sins, and then they're like, well, what about the priest in Ireland? And I'm like, what priest in Ireland? Is he your friend? You know, well, I don't know. I've never met him, but I read this article. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's get back to you. Yeah, but I heard, you know, my sister met this guy, and he called himself a Christian. You know, wait, 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 wait. You're, I'm not talking to your sister. I'm talking to you. And it is amazing how when you're talking to someone about needing Jesus, how we know that it's like it goes everywhere but them. And that's the same thing when we got to we deal with sin. It's like we'll go everywhere but, but where we need to be in that. Because that's where it gets fixed. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Deborah's walking down the street and a bird flies into her shoulder. And now she's got this gaping womb on her shoulder. 
And someone says, you know, and all of a sudden Bruno's walking by and he goes, Deborah, you've got a gaping one on your shoulder. She's like, yeah, I know, stupid bird. What's wrong with the birds in this country? We should eat them. You know, and, you know, and, and then Bruno's like, yeah, 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 enough about the birds. We need to treat your arm. And she's like, you know, I think we should kill all of the birds. And he's like, this isn't the time to talk about birds. This is the time to talk about your shoulder. And then Anna starts walking by and she's like, you are bleeding, Deborah. And Deborah's like, yes. Now I'm going to have to wash my shirt, you know. And, and she's like, yeah, but we need to get your archery. And no, it's my shirt, my shirt, my shirt. And, you know, and like in the other one, I was like, let's not let's stop talking about birds and shirts. Let's start talking about the, the problem is here and this needs to be fixed. And we do that if we're not careful. And so it's like on that side, it's like, look at, and I want to pray this for us because we can agree ideologically, but let's be honest. The reason Paul is hurt is because I believe they all agreed with him when he was there. But putting it in practice is a lot harder. And I want to pray that God would give us godly sorrow over our sins in such a way that it would lead to proper repentance. Now, on the other side of it, and believe it or not, I'm almost done. And you go, oh, I believe it. Uh, on the other side of that, Paul is talking about comfort. And this is going to be, by the way, the one place it's really focused on. And that's a hint, nudge, wink, by the way, when you start looking at verses about comfort. The two places where you're going to find comfort needed is in a repentant sinner and in a concerned friend. Does that make sense? And in a repentant sinner, the comfort needs to be issued to them so they know that they are welcome back in now that they're repentant. That will be the second Corinthian theme. Philippians, Paul's in prison and all these people are freaking out. But his comfort there was more rejoice. You should stop freaking over it. And you should stop freaking over it. And you should start rejoicing because God's actually put me here to start a prison ministry. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying. So it's like you're looking at it the wrong way, you guys. So the comfort really focuses here. And we see that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And please hear these verses. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that's challenges, trials, so forth, that we may be able to comfort those who are in, what's the next word? Any. Thank you. Any trouble. With the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, listen to these verses again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. May the God of all comfort be blessed. He comforts us in all our tribulation. If you don't know if you're going to find a house or where, or it smells like bleach barf. Uh, you know, work's getting crazy and you don't know what's happening, or family gets weird, or, or you know, a friendship sours, or you feel like you might get fired, or where in the world is the money going to come from, or your boss is actually probably still Adolf Hitler, he just moved to Brazil, or whatever it is, but in it all, you know, you're, you're, the, the issue is, listen, any trial or any tribulation means there's one solution, and the issue is not 
the trial, the issue is that they all could go to the same place. Now, did you get that? So let's just say, if you could just touch this wall, you could find comfort. This is hypothetical. It's not a special wall, although at the moment it's got this really kind of cool thing on it. Right. And it's like, if you had indigestion, if you had a headache, if you had a backache, you could touch this wall and be better. Once the angel stirs it, you know, the shadow on it. Um, if you have an emotional problem, you can touch the wall. That's great. If, you know, you've been fired and you're hurt, you're lonely, whatever, you know, such, well, well, the bottom line is, the wall is still the same. And it's the end all. It is the fix all, is the idea. And the God of all comfort is a God of all comfort because he's able to comfort everyone. He's the, he's the surefire and he's able to comfort us in all of our tribulation. Does that make sense? Now, the question is, what if somebody didn't know this wall had that property? Then you have a mission in a ministry. What if their problem is not your problem? Fairly likely it won't be. Does it matter? <coughs> no, it really doesn't. Not in that sense. As long as you know where the comfort is, that's all that matters, right? But the way that we normally read this verse is as if it's like he's able to help people with the same comfort you've received because of the same problems. How can I minister to a girl who's been raped? Because I know where the comfort is. And I'm only a vehicle. I'm not the comfort. I'm the vehicle there. Now, obviously, in a situation like that, I would, of course, chances are, it would be like, Suzanne, Deborah, Anna, Marcia, I need you there next to me. I want a girl there next to me for something like this that I trust. That's key. Because in the end of it all, I want them to develop a relationship with you. But I also trust that you know where the comfort is. And there's the beauty in it. So, oh, I've never slept with my mom. Well, that's very comforting. But this guy is repented now, and there's a comfort that can be issued. And you know who should be able to issue that comfort? Any and every Christian who's received comfort before. So let me ask you, is there anyone in this room who has not received comfort from God, the God of all comfort? Okay, then, you know what just happened? You just signed up. You realize that, right? Because you qualify. You did not get disqualified in that moment. So we are comfort issuers. That's what we are. In essence, we're people who bring the wall to them. No. For a guy like that, bring the wall to him. Now, comfort, by the way, is not hug, pat, 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 God must be mean, and must be horrible. Remember, the idea is, I want to bring you to the one who's going to comfort you. I want you to know this God loves you, and he wants to comfort you. And you go, you should let him. You should let him. Now, look at the loss of a child. I pray I never have to go through that. No parent should have to outlive their children. But I tell you what, we've, we've had, since we've been here, we've been in that situation where we have sat with people who have lost their child. And worse yet, to suicide. I can't even fathom. I mean, it's one thing to, lose, to have a child removed from you, and it's another thing in a situation like that, because then you start wondering what part you played in it. And, and if you are not confident 
that the God of all comfort really is the God of all comfort, you would never be a part of that. But when you go, someone needs to bring comfort to these families, and I know where that comfort's found. And you're aware of the fact, just like us, comfort's not something that's like you take a pill and the world gets better. Often it's something that is issued and issued and issued some more. So this, and by the way, don't you find interesting of all the letters Paul focuses on comfort, it's the one where he's hurt the most? Don't you find that interesting? I think there's a part of, as if you will, there's this battle between the Holy Spirit and Paul's hurt. I genuinely, and this is just my opinion, forgive me if, you know, you want to disagree and be a Christian, but it's, you know, where Paul's hurt and he's feeling this pain, but then the Holy Spirit says, you need to tell them about the God of all comfort, is if Paul were to reread this letter and realize God was actually saying that not just to them, but to him. He said, Paul, you need this comfort right now. Clearly. I mean, these people have questioned your cred. They've questioned whether you were even, how in the world do you think you could be an apostle? And you're flabbergasted by these crazy statements. And that condemnation is so full of populace and fire. And it's like, how do you, how do you not doubt it? Well, it's simple. You better just listen to the one who commissioned you because he's the only one who knows. But Paul looks and he goes, you know, it's, it's amazing when somebody gets saved becomes it goes into ministry in whatever way and then thinks you're a horrible person. Often, by the way, because you've had to sort of provide some form of discipline for some situation. And, and then you look and you think, you of all people should be the one standing on our side and going, no, I know this guy. I trust this guy. I know it's hard. <coughs> no. Because emotion has this way of warping everything you think. And it's sad. Even though you know God is good, too much emotion will warp even that in your head. It doesn't change the truth. It just changes the fact that you don't realize there really is as much truth as it used to be. So, on one side, I hate Paul. Paul says, hey... Will you seriously take a look at what's happening around you and realize how much of this was was because of the planting we did years ago, five years ago, four years ago? That's the time period. But then on the other side of it, I remind you, good job, those of you who actually did what I asked. (coughs) You did the hard thing before, now do the hard thing now. The hard thing was sending them out, and now the hard thing is getting them back in. Well, then do it. But what if the person wasn't that kind of repentant? What if that person was more hating their circumstances? Well, Paul doesn't speak about that. He doesn't say bring that person back in. As a matter of fact, Paul goes beyond that. This is what it says. He says, by the way, he says, you know, look, at, I told you that you weren't supposed to keep company with somebody that is a, living a life of sin. He goes, I know I wasn't talking about the world. Because you'd have to leave this world if that were the case. He goes, but someone called a brother or a sister, if you will, that lives this kind of life. He goes, I don't want you even eating with them. 
So that tells me if the person is unrepentant, there's no restoration for a person unrepentant. There's the hard part. But he, got, but he did say, because he goes, don't you guys realize that those kind of, you know, those things are indicative of a person who has no salvation at all. He goes, but such were some of you. But you were washed. You were. And he talks about the ministry of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit there. He says, the good news is you can be an X anything. Just be an X. Get it to be the X. Okay, last thing. And I put all the verses here. You know, interesting, isn't it? Even in all of this, clearly there's this weird, huge emotional drama. And Paul says, you know, I still plan on coming by. And I am planning to come by. I really don't want to come by as like this mean, nasty person. I'd really rather come by as a warm, fuzzy, give you a hug. And I'm so glad you guys are doing well. Please, please help me out with that. He goes, oh, and by the way, I still plan on making that collection. I plan on making that collection because, well, because people need it. And because people need it, and Paul's like, I'm not collecting it. Remember he said, the one thing that was different from you than others, he goes, I didn't, he goes, I didn't even take a collection from you guys. Because I didn't take any of your money. I worked you know, while I was there. He goes, well, if you think that that was an injustice, forgive me for that. And I do like this. He says, there were other churches, and they gave totally in, the, in their uh, liberality, and I'm so thankful for that. He goes, for you guys, you guys had already planned on storing it away. We're going to come and pick it up. Just want to warn you. Make sure it's still there, if you will. Make sure it's all taken care of, because I don't want to... Paul's like, I don't want to pass a hat. I don't want to put a conga line together and have you guys all march to the front, because you know what that means? That means some people are going to give because they feel they have to, but rather let the Lord lead people to give. And you know what? We're just going to come, so just let it be set aside so nobody feels awkward about the situation. I do really, really, I'm very, very thankful for that, by the way. So, this is the last thing in regards to that. Chapter uh, 9, almost the whole chapter is basically about this giving issue. But listen to this clearly. And again, you know, we don't take a collection here, so this is safe to say in, a place, in this context. Verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, that's people usually use that in regards to giving to church. And by the way, I can't I can't say that's not in context. That's in context, but it shouldn't be just money. It should be time and effort and talents, the things that God has given you. Let's face it: if it's all His, then let Him spend it where He wants to spend it, be that in whatever ministry and however way, whatever time. But then He says this: So let each one look at it with me. Nine seven. Let each one of you give as He purposes in His heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And by the way, the Greek word for cheerful is the word hilarious. You want to guess what word we get from that? That's not just cheery. He's like, you love a hilarious spirit. It's like, oh, I just got, oh, I had to think of the drafts. He's like, oh, take it. You know, and it's, the reason I say that is, is that this is what he says real giving should look like. First of all, what you purpose in your heart. What that means is that it isn't like somebody stands up the, you know, from there and says, I know you're saying you're giving, but God told me you should give a thousand pounds. I'm looking for a thousand pound champion here. Well, wait a minute. God knows how to tell you what to give. Your issue is obedience. But then it's not just what you purpose in your heart. It says not grudgingly. 
Well, the moment you give because you feel like you, you know, you have to, or be like, oh, fine, I'm take break. He's like, I was like, I'm not blessed by that. There's no hilarious in that. <sighs> but, in that but it says not just what you purpose in your heart, and not just grudgingly, but also not of necessity. What's that? Friends, if you do not give us 10,000 pounds tonight, we're going to go off the air. And you're going to have to spend, that time you'd spend listening to us, you're going to have to have silence to hear God say, you know, you should have gave. Because you know, that silence is going to be for God to tell you why you did that wrong for the rest of your life. <coughs> this nation's not going to be on anymore. And because it's not going to be on, can you sleep with that tonight, beloved? Brothers, sisters, widows, rich benefactors. I'm looking for some champions. And it's your responsibility. Yours and no one else's. That sounds like a necessity to me. You don't give because you have to. To be honest, anytime you do something because you have to, it really isn't the blessing it should be. Think it through. You give because you get to. You're like, oh, I have to spend a week with my wife on a cruise. Oh, I have to. Can you imagine how my wife would feel about that? Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. That's a joyful giver. Oh, I can't believe I have to go and have a burger with Daniel. Oh. Well, if you have to, then you're giving out of necessity. If you get to, I love that we get to serve you. I mean, if I can be honest, I wish that there were a million people we could reach out to, because what I want to see is London transformed. But I'll be honest, I love the fact I get to serve you. I love the fact we're in this room, and I'll be honest, I will take you over a thousand uninterested people any day. Because I see how you guys are gobbling up this, this information right now and wanting to take it to heart. And that's worth a million apiece. It's like, it, it isn't like I've never in my life gone, oh, I have to go to that study again. At least let me say it this way. Any that I got to teach at. <laughs> there were a couple where, you know, some friends like, hey, I'm in town and I'm going to be teaching. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to sit there. Anyway, <laughs> no one in our fellowship no one ever that I know personally. Uh, the reason is, is like, look at Giving should be, in its simplest sense, I get to. Sorrow should simply be, it's not, the only part that's about me now is getting right. Repentance is a changing of your mind and doing what is necessary to not go backwards. And comfort is a choice. Get under the wall. Are there any questions in regards to Second Corinthians? Because I'm sure you all got to read through Second Corinthians this week. Were there any questions in the text? Okay. Well, then I want to pray for us. Pray for us. We'll take a little break. We're way on schedule, even though we started late. Uh, yes, ma'am. We're not going to do the stuff things. Um, oh, thank you. I'd like you to look at those your own. Paul will spend time in regards to that, but it's like interesting what Paul says is instead of looking for the cred of my 
outward abilities, I'd like you to see the cred of my commitment. And the greatest way to see the cred of my commitment, to be honest, is in the challenges I face that haven't changed my mind. I'll be honest, you know, I, you know, forgive me for bringing up a movie, but because we've seen it twice, um, we had we got to see it twice. Uh, this latest Guardians movie. Uh, this guy that speaks kind of very bluntly, uh, and he says, and he's talking to a girl, and he just says, "Well, you're ugly," uh, and she's like, "Yay, I'm ugly." And the reason he says, he goes, "No, that's a good thing," because beautiful people never really know if people love them for them. Well, that was an interesting statement made. And the idea is, he's like, when you're ugly, people love you because you are who you are, clearly isn't because of your outer shell. And the, the whole purpose that I say that is, is that when you get so much out of people and all that, it's hard to tell, you know, if you really love them, if that makes sense. And it's like, the challenges are what really get to show you the length of, or the strength of your commitment. And I'd like to say, since we've been in London, we've never had the opportunity to show how committed we are to a fellowship like we have been to this. Because the challenges have never been this grave or overt or full frontal or as obvious or as wild as they've been since we've been here. And yet we've never turned cold, we've never turned heels. And the beauty of it is because we're committed to following the Lord and the Lord says, this is where I'm calling you. And, we're, and it isn't like we've ever had to. We get to. There's the sweetness of it. We would love those challenges to be gone, and we'd love just to be able to see this thing, you know, blow up. But let's be honest, if nothing else, the bottom line is real commitment is demonstrated in challenge. And what Paul says is, you want to compare me if I'm, if I'm really called to the ministry? Can you not see by now how many of these things I've been challenged by, and I've never turned code on you guys? You're proof that the ministry bears fruit. The only reason you're collecting together to judge me is because you became a church because I went there in the first place. He goes, but since then, what you see is the strength of a commitment because of those challenges. And by the way, I could see them challenging him on that because some of those people probably really didn't want to do the one challenge they were given, which was deal with that guy. And they're like, that's, that's, we don't do those kind of challenges here. And Paul says, you think that's a challenge? You should get the snot kicked out. You should get back out into the town and preach. That's real challenge. To have to deal with a guy like this? Yeah, that hurts. And that's hard. But that's nothing compared to thinking you're going to die like that. Or maybe dying and then having people stand around you and getting back up and getting back to work. And he goes like, look, at if, if, the, if your commitment's that much, and I'll say it this way, Paul concludes it with, you know, in Philippians when he says to live is Christ and die is gain. He's like, look, at my, if I'm going to live, it's going to be for Jesus. So it really doesn't matter. And if that means I have to tell someone something like that, it doesn't feel good, but I know it's right. And if I'm going to die, hey, I win in that. So I'm not going to worry about that. So, so anyway, so that's Paul lists those things. I do love the fact, anytime you're going through a hard time, I collected those all in a single area so you can look at those because Paul calls them mild. Mild? Like these mild, you know... Uh, problems, tribulations, and it's like, and he talks about being shipwrecked, and beaten, and whipped, and scarred, and he's like, and we, you know, we want to, like, it's sort of like, you look at that, and you realize we're weeping over hangnails, while Paul actually probably has a nail in him, kind of thing, I mean, it's a very big difference, you know, and it just kind of shows how weak we can be in those areas.
All right. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Okay. Anything else before we pray? Okay. Pray with me, would you please? stripes, three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked thrice, <coughs> night and a day in the deep. And everywhere, waters, robbers, his own people, Gentile cities, wilderness seas, false brothers. He was in danger everywhere. He was weary. His sleep was was weak hungry and was thirsty and went many days without or many meals without food. He knew what it was like to feel cold. He knew what it was like to feel naked. He knew what it was like to flee for his life on so many occasions. And even after all of this, somewhere in all of this, you show him eternity and everything changes. And then even in that, he has this thorn in his flesh. This thing, whatever it is, that was so rough that he begged you on three different occasions, please remove it. And he said, hey, my grace is sufficient. You said, God, you said your strength was made perfect in, in weakness. Not in, in our strength. And I'll be honest, I'd love for your strength to just top up mine instead of actually made perfect into its proper end in my weakness. But sometimes you got to make us weak just so your strength can really be manifested. And then Paul would tell us that he would boast in his infirmities that your power would rest upon him. And take pleasure in those infirmities and the reproaches and persecutions and distresses. For your sake, Jesus. Because he knows when he's weak, He's strong because it's your strength that is perfected in him. And Lord, I know we don't like to be weak. We live in a city where weakness just seems like a death sentence. But you are the God of all comfort. You are the God who is almighty. So we haven't ever any lack of comfort or strength at our disposal. Remind us that. And I pray, Lord, for the way that we view our own sins. We don't want to be those searching specks with plank eyes. So, Lord, please, let us feel proper sorrow over our sins. That would lead us to repentance. Where it doesn't have to be circumstances, but rather your Holy Spirit leading us to repentance. Your goodness. And in that, Lord, may we seek to be 
the ambassadors of reconciliation you've ordained for us to be. Thank you, Lord, for the power of what you've told us tonight. And I thank you for Second Corinthians. And I pray, Lord, for pastors who right now are going through the similar situation that that Paul went through then. Thank you for Christians. They don't have to just be people who have a title. There's Christians who are going through that same grief. Because they've invested their lives in people and sometimes those people really just get funky. I lift up my friend Ben to you who I know they've done that. They've invested in uh, some people that have really kind of turned code or specifically a young gal. I pray you would be their healing and their strength in this time. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless this ministry, that we could be fruitful, and that we'd never find ourselves in this place. I pray, Lord, that there would not have to be circumstances like this, that we would certainly never be apathetic of other people's sins, and even worse yet, applauding them. May we grow to be more like you. And therefore, in that, be ambassadors of reconciliation. Jesus, even as you are our reconciliation. In your name we pray. Amen. I've never had this problem that I can think of, and I'm so thankful for it. The closest thing you can get is social media to get today. But the two issues Paul deals with more than any in his letters, more consistent of the themes of the areas of division, what he clearly addresses in several of his letters, in the area of this group of punks called the circumcision. They arise after Gentiles start getting saved. Because there's a group of people that were raised Jewish that really just believes that Gentiles just would never get right with God. Regardless of whether they wanted to or not, in essence, if you'll pardon me for saying, they were hardcore Calvinists of the day, way before Calvin was born, with the idea that if you were born, if you were born Gentile, God's already ordained you to go to hell. Good luck with that, you know, because that's just the way it works. And so the reason we all have our prejudices, we all have our issues, whatever those things would be. And then we, we have this bag of flesh we try to drag over the, the, uh, the cross that really kind of gets us to this place where we're kind of like, and that's one of those areas of clearly that needed to die and stay dead and stay buried. That was, I love the fact that part of the Jesus didn't just die and then raise right away. Could have, but he didn't. Scripture made clear that wasn't the way it was going to be. He was buried in between. And that's really something we overlook a lot. The reason he was buried is because so, you know, who we were needs to be buried. That like dead but dragged around is still horrible. They need to be dead and buried. For this group of people, their view, which is, and I'll develop that a little bit more next week, God willing, uh, comes from Shemai's mindset, was again, was this angst against the Gentiles so badly that they could not believe that they could be saved. And finally, when everyone else passes the judgment that Gentiles can get saved, well, that doesn't go quickly without a fight, they have to compromise Compromise, really, to be honest, is dolling up a sin in a case like this. In other words, they still have the compromise. I'm sorry, they still have the prejudice, but now they're going to try to pretty it up enough 
so that it doesn't look like they have the prejudice. So, so what they're doing is they're saying, well, okay, how do I, how do, instead of, how, let me say it this way. When two things collide with each other, something's got to give. And when what you're thinking collides with the truth of God, one of those two things has to give. Now, truth isn't going to stop being truth. So either you change your mind or you warp the truth. And that's the way it works. So you can warp the truth by trying to make it seem like you... You've heard somebody and it's like you've argued with them, you feel like you're arguing with them, but you're actually both saying the same thing. Like, how are we arguing? We are actually agreeing here on this. But you're coming at it from different... You're saying it in a different way, so it almost sounds like you're... Well, the reason I say that is that kind of stuff applies only in the opposite in regards to the truth. So what happens is, in a case like this, Gentiles clearly can't get saved. That's clearly what I think. Wait a minute, Gentiles are getting saved. The most obvious thing to do at that point is the hardest thing, which is, I was wrong. My thinking was wrong, because God made that clear. And it takes a really godly person to do that. It takes a humble person to do that, in a case like this. And what you have instead, for instance, is you have a cult that comes up with something and then they get head on with the truth and they don't like the truth. So what they do is they write their own version of the Bible. Do you realize that the Book of Mormon is actually, according to Joseph Smith, was supposed to be the proper translation of the Bible? Do you realize that? His testimony was that every Bible was mistranslated and it was so mistranslated that his book was actually the Bible. I mean, that is like Jesus of Nazareth and Star Wars and going, oh, well, actually, that's the real translation. I'm like, it's not even close. And I mean, we could delve in all of the other aspects of it. You know, the fact that he says the testimony said that anyone who changes a character in this will be condemned to hell. And that he himself changes all these characters because he couldn't really spell and he couldn't even, you know, he was terrible with puns. He was, he was terrible. And so he, he condemned himself by those testimonies. And the same thing with the Jehovah Witnesses. Where when they get head-on collision with, and again, I'm only trying to, I'm trying to, not trying to pick on a group, I'm just trying to use proper examples, where what happens, and, and please understand, when somebody is just deluded, I have much more, I've, it's easier to have compassion, but when you get confronted with truth, and then you change the truth to meet your need, well, it still doesn't make the truth not truth. What it does now is you've created a lie and called it the truth, and that's, in both cases, they have their own version and by the way, the translators of the New World Translation, uh, the Jehovah Witness Bible, by the way, were arrested and fined for fraud because they couldn't translate John 3.16 from the Greek and one of the verses from Genesis in the Hebrew. I guarantee you, if you gave me 10 minutes, you could get John 3.16 without looking much for it. And the only reason I say that is, is that now when somebody says, okay, well, this is what I think, this is what the Bible says, I need to change the Bible. Well, then you know there's a problem. And then somehow you think that's going to be okay. Well, it's not going to be okay. For these people, they were like, I can't believe that the Gentiles, well, wait a minute, the Gentiles can't be saved, so how do I bend that truth to still keep my position? Does that make sense? Well, then what you have is what's, what, we, what we might call a technicality. So our technicality is, well, maybe the Jews could somehow become kind of like a Jew, then they could be saved. Okay, I guess that makes sense, right? Yeah. So if they could just, if we could write out what it takes for a Gentile to become a Jew, 
Well, clearly they're going to have to do this in this, and hands down, without a doubt, they're going to have to get circumcised. Because no Jew is not circumcised. So, they were called the circumcision. They followed Paul around. They were like an anti-fan group. And when Paul went to different places, groups followed him to lay this heavy trip on people. And Paul will address that, and I have that, I think, already uh, in several places. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Titus. All of those places you'll see, Paul addresses that. I mean, to the point where he says, whose mouths must be stopped. I mean, how many times does Paul go after someone like that? But of all the places, Paul is most hurt in 2 Corinthians. Paul is most confused or shocked in Galatians. Now please hear me. Paul never doubted the salvation of the Corinthian church with all of its problems. And let's face it, no church do you get more obvious flaws out of than the Corinthian church in regards to their letters. Man, they're messed up. But the foundation was never tampered with. They were abusing grace, no doubt. But the foundation wasn't tampered with. The foundation, there's only one foundation that could be laid, and that's Jesus Christ. And I remind you, what Paul said to the Corinthians was, hey, when I came, I vowed to know nothing, but Jesus Christ and in him crucified. Remember that. And him crucified. And so, he knows, what Paul could say to the Corinthians is, y'all messed up, pardon me for a loose paraphrase, y'all messed up in so many areas, but at least you got this. Jesus Christ and him crucified. You got that. In other words, and he would even say, look at, be careful how you build. No other foundation can be laid. And he tells the Corinthians, no other foundation can be laid but Jesus Christ. But then you can build stupid or you can build smart. And he goes, but in the end of it all, you got the foundation. The, the Galatian church, on the other hand, he looks at and he goes, I'm not sure I'm confident in your, in your foundation. Because you are bailing on Jesus Christ's crucifixion to go back to the law. Now, I want to remind you, it's either grace or it's earned. If it's just as simple as it is, it's either grace or it's earned. The question is, like we could say in regards to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, maybe the big thing for us is we kind of, what seems to kind of resonate is this get to versus have to thing. You know, giving, service, everything, is either you get to or you have to. Uh, sometimes, by the way, if the issues are our attitude, well, it's always our attitude, by the way. But uh, the uh, in this, the issue is: is it grace or is it earned? Because he says, "Have you begun in the spirit? Are you trying to be complete or com or perfected in the flesh?" And what he'll use, the term that he will use here other than the book of Romans, will be used more than any other New Testament book, even though it's only six chapters long, and the term is the law. Now, I remind you, the law, the way that they were dealing with the law is it made it earned. And I would say it this way, if you'll pardon me this sort of metaphor. The Ten Commandments 
were given, I remind you, after God took them out of Egypt. That is important. Now, it's before they would reach the land of fruitfulness, but it was after they were removed out of Egypt. Does that make sense? That is grace. Grace says the law came after you left Egypt, after God got you out. Ern says the law was in Egypt, and if you did it, then you got out of Egypt. Does that make sense? So I often use the phrase, it puts the law in Egypt. Putting the law in Egypt, what it's saying is, well, if you do it, then God has to respond. And so what Paul does in the letter, and this is what I want to challenge you to do on your own, because, you know, you know me, it'll go all night, but I'm not going to, right. is that he, he breaks it up, if you will, into three, two chapter sections. And the first, and this may sound familiar from those of you who were here when we went to Romans. In the first section, Paul gives testimony in those first two chapters. And by the way, we have some unique information in those uh, two chapters. We do not have it anywhere else in the Bible about Paul's testimony. His going to Arabia and his showdown with Peter. And might I say it this way, in the first two chapters, what Paul makes clear, because all of it's going to be in relation to this, is that salvation cannot be a work of man, but a gift of God. Because he'll say, this is where I was, and man didn't do this, God did. This is what happened, but man didn't do that, God did. And then I went with Peter, and then Peter was trying to act like man did it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 God did it. That's the first thing. So salvation is a work of is, is a gift of God, not a work of man. Then chapters three and four, we see Paul's plea to the people, and what you see is sanctification is not a work of man, but a gift of God. Now, how does that look as a gift of God? It is a work of God's spirit, not a work of man's flesh. It's not in our programs. And here's the danger in all of that. It's like, you know, well, we need to have a discipleship program. How about we disciple people? That's a great program. Well, I don't know how to disciple people. Well, what does, it, what does it mean? Chances are, by the way, if you actually looked at how the Bible showed how people discipled, what they did is they actually befriended other believers, and then they walked with Jesus and encouraged them to do the same. That's a pretty way cool discipleship program. Versus, I want you to know you got six months, and this is our first point. And I, I appreciate that at least it's causing people to do it. But in the end of it all, what we find is, I just don't want it ever to look like a work of man versus a move of God's spirit. So, salvation is not a work of man, it is a gift of God. Sanctification is not a work of man, but a gift of God. And then finally, in the last two chapters, service is not a work of man, but a gift of God. That's a weird place to go. But when you start thinking about, well, wait a minute, that's the fruit of the spirit. Actually, that's in lines with service, if you think about it. Because the fruit of the Spirit was contrasted with the work of the flesh. And when we think of the work of the flesh, we often think of it as just running off into sin versus, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to do this, I'm going to do that, and oh, that guy's getting drunk, and that guy's having sex, and that guy's, well, those are the works of the flesh. But what he's showing us is, is that ultimately, the work of the flesh is relying on you to do the work by the law for God to respond versus God doing the work through you, which has to be the fruit of his spirit. 
So on one side, it's the work of your flesh, and on the other side, it's the fruit of God's Spirit. Now, what it bears forth is sin over here, and on this side, it bears forth the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of it on this side. But what we're going to find is there's a radical aspect of that. You've been set free now, but being set free is not about serving yourself now. It's saying you're not set free to sin, you're set free to serve. So there's our chapters. So, and if, you, you know, you, you get the idea, if you remember from Romans, it's like sin. Do you guys remember those? It was sin, the, and then salvation, and then sanctification, and then God is sovereign and smart, and then finally it was service. And he's showing, you know, he's showing that these are all works of God. They're all the move of God. They're not the works of men. And again, why is he writing that? Because he's writing to a church. Uh, and, Galatia, and by the way, I want to point out, it's not a city, but a region. And it's even clear in text, and you'll see that I left that for you. That, uh, he's like, you guys are all relying on the law. And he's like, you guys have got this, you flip this thing backwards. What in the world are you thinking? It's the only church, or the only letter Paul writes where he doesn't actually, as far as uh, circular, that he doesn't start with, oh, I thank God for this, and how you're doing this, and how you're doing that. He actually just starts with, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you've bailed on the most important things from where you guys are. And it just, it shocks him. It shocks him. And he actually says, I'd love to come and change my life. I have doubts about you guys. I have doubts. Man, imagine Paul going and, go, you know, writing a letter to the church and going, I'm not really sure you guys are saved. Well, that's a great place to go. So, well, you know, one thing's for sure. If Paul's writing it, we probably should take it seriously. So, so do this. And I've left these lines. And what I'd love you to do then is just kind of, as you read through those first two chapters, for instance, write down just some things. You write down the simple, basic facts about Paul's testimony. You know, think, and again, facts are, you know, this is what I learned from that. And then you get into the second area. And then it's like, well, write down what you learned about the law in its comparison with the covenant of adoption, or if you will, him calling us sons. And then in the last area, the comparison of the flesh and the spirit. And by the time you're done, you'll be armed. And you both have You can't just copy up your head. Are there any questions in regards to Galatians? I, I love the letter. But by the way, as where Paul was extremely hurt and emotional, if you will, in that sense of kind of jilted in Second Corinthians, Paul is on fire in Galatians. He would say things like, if a guy gives you another gospel than this, let him rot in hell. Oh, let me say it again, just in case you didn't get it. Let him rot in hell. That's what he says. Let him be a curse. That's what he's saying. You can tell he takes it seriously. You know, Paul, the, the kind of tenderness and, and hurt that you hear in Paul in Second Corinthians is, not, I mean, this is the running of the bulls in Galatians, you know. And, and he says, you know, what? Those, those circumcision, I wish they'd just go all at it and cut themselves off. Well, talk about trash talk. But because, let me, please hear me on this. It's because this is an issue of self. <coughs> This is a salvation issue. This isn't just an issue of Christians being less effective. This is an issue about people being Christian or not. 
then this is a matter of life and death. So Paul doesn't have a problem saying what he's saying. That's clear. Which tells us, Paul really doesn't have a problem telling you what he thinks. All right. Well, let's pray. And uh, we have...